Welcome to the Leadership Pulse, where we talk about all things health, healthcare, culture, and leadership. I'm your co-host, Jessica Zampetri. And I'm Becky Wolf, your other co-host, and I have the pleasure of introducing our guest today. Uh, today with us, we have Dr. David Keynes. Uh, Dr. Keynes is an experienced urologist, robotic surgeon, and entrepreneur. He is uh, full-time practicing in the Boston area. He is the founder of a software company uh, as a side business. Uh, and fun fact, he has five kids, and he's originally from South Africa. Dr. Keynes, welcome to Thank the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. So we start the podcast every episode asking the same question to our guests. And the question uh, we're starting with is, if there is one thing you could shout from the rooftops that you want every person in healthcare to hear about culture, leadership, or medicine in general, what would that be? That the most underrated um, way to tackle wellness and burnout is to focus on workplace efficiency. That, that's what I would want everyone to know. Mm. I think uh, this, maybe it's a small corner topic, but it's one that I don't see spoken about uh, often enough. Um, so, you know, if I, could, mm -hmm. if I could speak to every hospital CEO, I would shake them by the shoulders and say, listen, wellness is workflow. Um, so we can elaborate on that if you want. Yes, yep. I was just going to ask you to tell us more about that. <laughs> we're, we're definitely interested in diving right. so, into that. I mean, as you have both spoken about before, burnout is a huge problem. I suffered from it personally. It's, every doctor knows about it. If it hasn't touched them personally, they know somebody who it's touched. You know, the surveys are it's quite upsetting. Somewhere between 40 and 60% of all physicians are burnt out. And the opposite of burnout is wellness, uh, where you feel like you're thriving instead of just, you know, barely surviving. And the the way to tackle that, the, the typical way to tackle that, and, and I don't want to sound disparaging because I, I think it's not like I have the answer to wellness and nobody else does. That's not the case. That's yeah, why we right, brought you right, on right. here. Yeah, I'm the only one who knows how to fix this problem. Um, no, the, the, the solution to this huge problem is going to come from multiple angles. I'm just, what I'm just trying to impart is that this one angle is, isn't getting enough attention. So here are the things that get a lot of attention. Um, the hospital will assign a wellness officer, which is important, don't get me wrong, but there'll be a wellness officer, and, and just having done that feels like we're closer to a solution. But that, that's just a title of somebody who, who's going to be working on this. Most of the things that we hear about, well, I'll list some of them. The doctor should make sure that they, or the, not just doctors, any practitioner, that they eat well, that they get exercise, that they get enough sleep, that they are mindful, that they practice mindfulness, that they are resilient, that they remain positive. Um, maybe they'll even create an area in the hospital that is um, a serene escape for people to reflect and pause. Um, maybe people should learn about 
yoga and uh, as part of their exercise routine and and again I don't want this to be taken the wrong way I think all of those things are important and I try to do those but the problem is that those things are all you know the burden of accomplishing that is predominantly falls on the doctor and so that's the problem that I have with it I mean we would all ideally like to be doing all those things but it's very difficult to to do it so it's somewhat low-hanging fruit to say here are all the things that you should do uh, but the yeah. difficult thing is yeah. um, to focus on what is what is a harder problem to solve usually doctors who are burnt out or I can at least I'll speak to my, for myself when I was burnt out I was mostly thinking help me like please help me get through my day help me tangibly like mm. somebody help me my 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 days are really hard and some of the things I do are very repetitive and um I'm not I'm not above doing repetitive things but to some degree there are some things that I think I shouldn't be doing. Um, Can you tell yeah, me more I mean, about this? When I'm, when I'm happiest, I am really utilizing the skills that I work so hard to, to hone. So, for example, I'll just take an example from yesterday. Yesterday I was in clinic and I, and I saw a gentleman with prostate cancer who was in his 60s, he was there with his wife. I could tell as soon as I opened the door, they were like really, really nervous, anxious, as most people would be if they'd been given a cancer diagnosis. As it turns out, his prostate cancer was very low-grade, very non-aggressive, the least aggressive kind of prostate cancer that exists that most urologists these days agree doesn't need to be treated at all. And some are even debating whether we should call it cancer in the first place. But a lot of patients hear the C word, they hear cancer, and they there's a knee-jerk reaction of freaking out, like, oh, my God, I need to get it treated. And if, if somebody doesn't stop them, or worse, if somebody, if a doctor keeps encouraging them along that path, they'll end up doing something like taking their prostate out or having their prostate radiated, where that, that's not going to help them because the thing is not even a threat. And it might actually permanently hurt them in, in, in ways that will make their quality of life worse. So this is this description. I probably should have shortened it a little bit. But you get the picture. This guy. It's yeah, okay, so um, I spent the next 45 minutes talking his, he and his wife basically off a ledge, um, explaining that, in fact, prostate cancer is not his prostate cancer is not that threatening and it was really a nice conversation i i enjoyed it and um not that i have to enjoy every conversation but if i'm doing something for 30 years that's also important uh you need to keep yeah. doctors uh in this profession and yes it's a privilege to do this and everything but um if i really felt like my, that conversation was very important and I was utilizing everything that I know to try to do the right thing by this patient. And you could just see that his shoulders drop and, you know, 
his wife and he were looking at each other like relieved that they might actually leave the visit with me and go like have dinner and and celebrate that they were so so they went in to this visit completely despondent and they left like elated and and what's so meaningful to me is I I, I really feel like that interaction was very important I I might have saved that guy a lifetime of of grief um so when I'm able to just quickly analyze the the data and make a decision and then sit in a room face to face with a patient and make a difference and make a connection they were so thankful uh, like that is fantastic i love that and and if i could go back to you know 20 year old david canes which is now a long time ago this is the kind of stuff where where I wanted to be a doctor for stuff like this. And, uh, yeah. okay, so now let me just tell you how that visit could be horrible. Uh, I show up. There's no records. We don't have the patient's biopsy report. Nobody checked the chart beforehand to see if it was there. We spend 15 minutes calling the outside office trying to get the report. Then they fax us over a consent form, a HIPAA release form, and then it's 25 minutes. My and now I'm running really late, and I and I can sort of see my day fall off the rails. And they fax it, and it's not the it's not the right report, et cetera, et cetera. So like, you know, that's just one small example. But there's many um, like sm- tiny paper cuts that can happen. Uh, when you're practicing and the workflow is not good. There's, there aren't good systems in place. Mm-hmm. Um, ancillary staff around you aren't, aren't working at the top of their license. So you can't work at the top of your license. You're chasing down results. You're chasing down films. Or you, and you walk into the room, the patient's not sure why they're there. Um, I can make up a lot of examples. But in many people's clinics... Workflows are suboptimal. And then, death, you know... Death yeah. by a million yeah, cuts. Yeah, death by a million cuts. Death by right. a million... Or, you know, yeah. the that happens, and then the doctor in their head is budgeting for the time that they need to document the visit, and so they cut the visit short, and they're not fully present in the conversation. Um, they're thinking about something else, so they're half they're half in it. Um, and really a good way to, 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 as a litmus test for this is what, how can we go back to what we aspired to when we decided to do this profession in the first place and anything else should be, should, should hopefully be eliminated or minimized. I mean, we, to be realistic, there's always going to be some things we have to do that are unpleasant in the context of doing a, a complicated job, I'm, I'm, I don't have I don't have yeah. magical thinking like we can erase all these things. But when hospital administrators and office managers focus on how can I fix this broken workflow, that's when I think what that's actually when when <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. That happens a lot. So when when hospital administrators and managers can 
can fix broken workflows. That's when I think wellness really happens. So, for example, yeah. for example, I let's would... say like you know, scribes. Scribes are a tangible improvement to somebody's workflow. If you go to a doctor and you say, "I'm going to give you a scribe," they'll say, "Wow, like that's that's great." As opposed to like, "I'm going to give you uh, a." lecture on resilience or mindfulness. I'm not saying I'm not saying it's not important. Again, I want to clarify. I'm just saying that you have to focus equal attention or maybe even more attention on on the workflow enhancements. I was just talking to someone earlier today and it was a nice switch of frame where healthcare isn't broken. Healthcare system is designed to get us the exact result we're getting. And so it's a system issue. If we want to change the results we're getting, we've got to change the system that's in place. And that's workflow, that's, it's all the pieces. What do you think the largest, or Becky, go on. Sorry. Yeah, to add to that, Jess, I think it is like allowing all of the people in the collaborative team to work at the top of their license. That way everybody is factoring in the things that they're good at. Um, and we've brought, we've talked to some other physicians who have said the same thing. They're just noticing that collaborative teams could be so much better. Yeah, you're exactly right. So here's the ideal situation. When, when, I, when I find myself um, fully engaged and enjoying my job, someone else on my team has checked all the charts beforehand. Well, I'm just talking about clinic day. I'm not talking about the operating room, but it just so happens the operating room, in my view, is just as wonderful now as it was in 1990-something when I first stepped foot into an OR. The OR is has like te- is covered in Teflon, like, and deflects all. It's yeah, your happy I mean, place. all. No one can bother <laughs> you, and it it, uh, it it's very similar to me as it always was. But that's why I'm talking about clinic clinic day so much. Because that, yeah, and I think a lot of physicians, yes, there's caveats and there's hiccups in the operating room, but it's more of their flow yeah. state where the clinic, they don't get to be as present and engaged because of all of these systematic things, and it's much more. Yeah, disruptive. you're right. It is much more disruptive. So you know, I I focus a lot on my own workflow, and members of my team will review the outside records, assemble. Uh, a basic history of present illness, fill in all the sections, medications, allergies, social history, family history, the whole gamut, so that I need to, um, I always say it's, it's easier to be an editor than it is to be an author. I'll make minor tweaks to the HPI to add what, you know, minor details that the patient uh, imparts to me or things that I need to correct, the important parts of the physical exam, and then the plan. And the, the plan is my expertise, right? But it, but I'm not in the room going, yeah. oh, my God, I, I got to get out of here so I can document. Because the document takes me uh, not long at all. And I really enjoy that when I'm sitting face-to-face with the patient in the exam room, that's when I feel like a doctor. And that's what I imagined being a doctor would mm-hmm. be like. And I like that part. Um mm-hmm. And I don't want to speak for all doctors, but I think a lot of doctors are similar. If you dig deep and you think about what is it that inspired me to do this thing in the first place, 
you were mm-hmm. you were a college student or a high school student and you maybe you shadowed somebody and you were a fly on the wall and you're like oh my god this is like really a privilege um mm-hmm. so yeah yeah go I ahead go, no tell oh, me sorry go ahead i Finish your, if you want to finish your thought or I say I was connecting something you said earlier to what you just said. So, so going from when you were feeling burnt out until now, it sounds like you have put some things into place where you feel like the workflow for you has gotten better. Can you highlight some of those? Yeah. So one of them is designating team members to, I call it skeletonizing the the note, getting as much in there Mm -hmm. as possible. Uh, as you said, at the top of their licenses. Um, and, and there's some resistance to this, you know. Uh, that was the question yeah. I was going to ask next is the, how was implementing that? Where was the Yeah, resistance? it's very challenging. Some, some people just sort of say that's not my – well, the knee-jerk response of most people – including me in many times, just to say no, right? <laughs> I mean, if you read um, Never Split the Difference, right, that famous book on negotiating, yeah. part of that is flipping the question so that you can let people say no and they're saying yes. But, uh, yeah, so most people are going to say, oh, no, no, that's not, I'm not allowed to do that. It's not in my scope of practice. But if you really look and you dig and you try to find that written down somewhere, it's not written down anywhere. Um, so some of it is a culture shift and there needs to be buy-in across departments that, listen, we're prioritizing people working at the top of their license or, or sometimes it's on a managerial level. Like, listen, I'm sure I could see two more patients a day if we implemented a system where I can work efficiently. Otherwise it's not possible. So Sometimes it involves dollars and cents, like we're going to implement this and we'll be able to see more patients, which is true. And it should be able to happen without, you know, ripping your soul apart if if the workflow is good. Um, So trying to implement a system where the notes are already done. I've also implemented certain rules like if somebody is coming to me with films that are important to the consultation, they have to be loaded into our our packs, our imaging system beforehand. Because a previous version of me would be in clinic, I'm I'm completely bald for listeners who don't know, pulling my hair out, like trying to trying to get <laughs> images to load on a CD. If the CD doesn't load, it won't load on the computer. I I won't do that anymore, and I, you know, um, mm-hmm. and I thought I'd see a lot of resistance from that, and it turns out there was no resistance. And now, when the films are there, they're there, and I, I, I want to spend time looking at the kidney tumor on the MRI, not fiddling with, with a disc in the computer. I mean, that that drives me insane. So sometimes it's small things like that. Then I spend a lot, a lot of time on my electronic health record um, skills and templates and order sets. I'm a huge proponent of that. And much of my recent um, social media presence lately has been, you know, 
putting out some tips that I've come across over the years to try to help other people do the same thing. But So if you can combine having your team help you get ready with optimizing the EHR, uh, as it turns out for me personally, scribes weren't all that helpful, although I appreciated trying them, trying them out. It, I, I found I didn't need help in the visit itself. What I needed most help with was preparing everything, prepping it. So, um, but but that works for other for other people. Um, but with that combination, mm. I, I find that I can I can be the doctor that I that I aspire to be, and I can I can have meaningful interactions with patients, and often even in less time. Um, and then there, no, it's yeah, no. There's another piece that we can, which leads to why I started this software company in the first place. But um, if you did something, I say spark a question. Yeah, I was gonna say with implementing new systems and workflows, did you find that your team's culture was a huge proponent? And if it was, did you have to improve the culture in any way? You know, there's a, there have been moments of of pushback and um, disgruntledness. It hasn't been like a straight line. I will admit that some of these solutions are just pushing the jobs that people don't want to do to someone else who agrees begrudgingly to do it for a period of time. So (laughs) scribes are a perfect example of that. Like entering data into a chart is quite awful. And so what what we're doing... <laughs> yeah, it's not favorite? my favorite. So what we're doing with scribes is we're saying, here's this awful thing, and here's a group of people, a lot of them are medical students, who've just agreed to do this terrible thing for a very short period of time until they get into medical school. <laughs> it's all about setting expectations. Right. So... And giving Yeah, time. so I mean, the heavier lift that is going to ultimately have to happen is is to somehow really redo how EHRs are constructed mm-hmm. so that that job doesn't exist for anyone. And I don't think that's too far off. And so another example of this is, no. you know, if I, if I don't like pre-charting or if I feel like my time's better used in other ways, my nurse or MA also hates pre-charting, but they're agreeing to do it. So some of these are are band-aids. I don't have a solution to that mm-hmm. aspect. Yeah. And now your software company, was it launched because of an issue you were dealing yeah. with? Um well it it happened somewhat accidentally. I, I didn't I didn't set out to um to to start a software company. Someone else uh, uh, I was speaking with referred to me as a reluctant entrepreneur, and I think that's that is accurate. Reluctant, reluctant. yeah, reluctant entrepreneur. entrepreneur. <laughs> I stumbled into it, um, but the problem was that you can't you can't control what a patient knows and when they know it. So, and and this is it's really kind of a cool problem to solve. So imagine I'm about to go into an exam room for a consultation for a small kidney tumor. 
and I'm looking down at the doorknob of the room. And as soon as I put my hand on that doorknob, I'm thinking to myself, of course, I'm thinking I want to help this person and have a, a great conversation. But I'm also thinking, like, how long is this going to take? Because this this is scheduled for a half an hour. And and I want to have... Con- Which is way more time yeah, than some occasionally, people get for. So half yeah, an hour is like is. a luxury. And oftentimes, I'm double booked, so it's really 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. This is all about control, right? If I'm feeling well, then I have control over my schedule. And if I'm feeling burnt out, I feel like completely out of control. And one of the things I feel out of control about is as soon as I open that door, like when I'm, how long is this going to take? If I don't feel like I can control that, it's, it's very disarming. So mm. part of the problem is I could walk in there and say, so why – what brings you in here? Uh, do, do you know why you're seeing me today? And the patient can say, yeah, I I have a small growth in my kidney. I've researched it, and I know. And then I sort of breathe a sigh of relief. We're not starting from square one, okay? Or I can go in and they can say, I don't know. Why am I here? My PCP just said to come. What kind of, doc- what kind of doctor are you? You know, then yeah. I then I'm all of a sudden tense up and I'm like, oh my god, th- this is going to be sixty minutes. Never mind, like fifteen. Mm-hmm. And that has to do with, mm-hmm. you know, this fundamental. One of the fundamental truths is, I can't get to explaining to a patient what what needs to happen until they have a basic understanding of their their condition. So. Yeah. I, I stumbled on this small kidney tumor thing. So I, I can't tell a patient what needs to happen until they understand what a kidney is, um, what mm-hmm. cancer is, that people get growths in the kidney, how these generally behave, and all the different ways that it's treated. Until I get through that basic information, I can't get to the good stuff, which is like, okay, so here's what we're going to do. So this aspect was really getting to me, and I noticed that um, this was a driver of burnout for me, and and I had all these repetitive spiels that I would give for for you know the top fifteen twenty things that I see, and I would launch into these spiels with my mind on other things because I'd given these talks like thousands of times, and I felt so disconnected. And that's what exactly how I don't want to feel. I want to feel like I'm having a, a genuine, very real conversation with a person who needs my help, and I'm, and I want to get to know them a little bit, and I want to, I want to be in the moment. And when I would press play on these spiels, I I felt just not like a doctor. So. Uh, that 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 is designed to frame the problem for you, and and so I started pre-sending information to patients. That was my little solution for myself. Okay. And at this point, I'm not thinking I'm going to start a company. <laughs> I'm just thinking, God, I need help. So, for example, I treat a lot of prostate cancer, and there's this incredible PDF patient guide from the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. It's it's amazing. And I, I asked my administrative assistant, if somebody's seeing me for prostate cancer on the schedule, 
please contact them beforehand and email them this PDF and ask them to read it. And so like 80% of patients read it. And those visits were like night and day because I was controlling what Mm -hmm. the patient knew and when they knew it. And so when I walked in, Um, we're starting from step five. And first of all, I enjoy that more because it's much less predictable. I'm not really sure what they're going to ask me and I'm not sure yet what I'm going to say. And so I'm at the top of my game. I'm like at the top of my license. And the uh, patient is the patient is psyched, right? Because they, it's almost like they're having a, a second visit with me, even though it's the first visit. So they go through the basics on their own time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then when they're with me, when, when a patient's seeing me, we should only do what could only happen face-to-face. And anything else should happen mm-hmm. at some other time. So I started, uh, once I started doing this, I, I took it a step further and I recorded myself giving an explanation of robotic prostate removal. Because, you know, frankly, I'd given that <laughs> that explanation about, you know, 2,000 times. And so... I wanted to give my best version of that explanation just one more time. And so I put it on YouTube, not because I wanted... Now, here's this is interesting. Not because I wanted a ton of views on YouTube, just because I only wanted the patients who were coming in to see me to watch it. Like if that video had 40 views, that's 40 patients who would see it, and that would be fine with me. So, um, So... Well Prepped was born out of this desire to get patients prepared before they showed up. And it was inspired by um, things like Linktree. What do you guys have on your uh, Instagram uh, bio link? Where we are not that, not that advanced, advanced yet. yet. <laughs> We're not as techie okay, as but you it, yet. But if I say, if I we'll say Linktree, it. you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. I know what Linktree so is, though, yes. Linktree yeah. is, is just a, a way of putting a bunch of buttons on a page to collect your resources mm-hmm. in one spot. So I did that, again, not thinking I was going to start a company. I made myself a little Linktree-type page, and it was my all my favorite resources. And I I showed it to a bunch of doctor friends of mine, and I was like, can you try this? Because either I'm crazy or, like, <laughs> other people are going to like this too. And a few of my mm-hmm. doctor friends tried it out, and they loved it. They were, like, they were reprinting their business cards with the QR code on it. It changed their workflow so much because oh, they could just basically awesome. collect their favorite stuff and give it to every patient. Mm. And um, oh, so at that point... Yeah, And not only are you building a resource for the patients, but your video too, like you're growing trust factors yes. there and trust mm-hmm. triggers where by the time they come in, you're not this just surgeon on a website. They mm-hmm. relate a little bit better to you. I you know, it's funny you say that because I've been thinking about that more and more in the context of, of a post-COVID world because – not a single one of my patients sees me without a mask on. And mm-hmm. it's very hard to develop a level of trust if you don't see somebody's full face. 
And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that's eyes, true. the eyes are the most important thing. And so maybe that's an overstatement, but they get to see me on a video ma- without a mask. Mm-hmm. And, and increasingly, I think that mm-hmm. you're right. They develop, they start to feel like they get to know me a little bit. Um, and that's why mm-hmm. I tell doctors who are starting on well prep, record even the crappiest iPhone video of something. It doesn't even matter. The production value is like, uh, mm-hmm. doesn't, doesn't matter at all. Yeah. And, um, don't let perfect get in the way exactly. of good enough. Perfect T T F to that uh, quote. I love <laughs> yeah, no, that. you're right. And so, and I, go ahead. And then I heard. I just think the other. Am I gonna have to call <laughs> on one of you? <laughs> <laughs> you might have to. I just think, like off of what Jess said with the trust factor, it gives patients the comfort of knowing their doctor cares, like on a different level of they're going to this, you know, this extent of highlighting these videos that must be really important for me to watch. So it's just, um, it deepens that relationship, I think, just knowing that there's an extra step that you're taking. You know, I'm glad you said that because before I started doing it, before I sat down and recorded the the first video I ever recorded, um, it was when Loom video just came out. You know Loom, right? Where you record your screen and there's a circle. Yeah, okay. So I recorded <laughs> yeah. Loom, and it was so early in Loom's history that there was no time limit on the free version. Mm-hmm. There's no time limit. So I thought to myself, this could backfire completely. Like, are patients going to get so pissed that this – this doctor sent me pawned me off on this video instead of <laughs> instead well, does he not want to talk to me i was I was afraid that that was gonna um and some of the early doctors who tried this out were also concerned because I told them you should record your spiels so that you don't have to give your spiels and your patients are gonna love mm-hmm. it and then and they're like, but I think the yeah. patients want to hear that spiel from me, and I think they're gonna be pissed, and as far as I know. Patients have not had that reaction because the no. why? Here's why, why I think they don't, though, because they're only hearing like sometimes what they are able to digest or process in the visit. So if they can go back and review it, they're getting you know additional information, and then they can really come with good questions. Yeah. So the way they process it, they have a deeper level of ability to ask those questions, like you highlighted before. They're deeper questions. But I don't think that that is a negative. I actually think it's like, you know, I'm able to sit and process and actually come up with the things that are meaningful for right. me, for my specific. No, you know, I'm glad you said that. There's two things that you said. One is that I I think is absolutely right. They can consume it in it however they want, slower, faster, again, mm-hmm. pause, repeat. Yep. Um, and also... Just just to emphasize, this is not instead of having conversations with patients. It's so that you can have the next conversation, you know, have the second yeah. and third yeah. conversations, which maybe you wouldn't have even gotten to. And that's what I was going to point out. I'm sure it would be absolutely different if you walked into the room and you were like, all right, we're going to book you for surgery next week. But you're coming in and you're connecting yeah. deeper with them because they've done the yeah, work. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I also have this. It's funny. I have... Um, a different reaction to so patients will often come in with a list of questions and i'm just giving you 
like raw behind the scenes thought bubble here. But like when the patients <laughs> took that list of questions out, sometimes it you know in the past it would really bother me, mostly because these the questions would surface when there was two minutes left, and I would think, oh God, we can't. Oh my, the questions we like we don't have time for that. And, it, and it, it was a feeling of resentment, like, how dare you come with this list, which is horrible. I mean, that list is so yeah. important. The patients took time to make that list. So what doctors who are using WellPrep now are telling me, they, the list of questions comes out, like, right at the beginning. And you're, like, happy to go through all those. In fact, like, going through those yeah. questions is mm -hmm. great because I can't always predict what they're going to be, which is more interesting. I'd rather have things be a little unpredictable. And and they the patients deserve to have those questions thoroughly answered. So it's sort of flipping, mm -hmm. flipping the idea of how a clinic visit should be structured. There's this thing called the flipped classroom. And okay. um, the more. flipped classroom uh, was started by what is now the Khan Academy, and it was the idea that you would okay. send all the um, course materials to the students before the, the class, and then they would show up, and the class could be advanced learning. Not that you would come in with as a blank slate and listen passively to a lecture. You had pre-work to do. Um, I didn't even know about this, but um, Shiv Gaglani, who hosts the Osmosis podcast, was was like this is the this is a flip classroom and I'm like what is that <laughs> um, but he, so he introduced me to this idea and it's true we're sort of flipping the idea of a patient encounter not that the all the educating should happen when you're in there some of it can and maybe a refresher but if if a lot of it happens before the patient gets there think about how much space that opens up for other things and it's not for every single yeah. patient i mean some listeners are going to be like mm -hmm. but my patient population and what about less educated patients and and you know what about internet access and all those things are true it it this is not for every single patient and every type of encounter but most workflow improvements are not like everything for everyone even even things yeah. like just you know, voice dictation. Not everybody uses it. Sometimes you mm -hmm. want to type. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what it's allowed you to do is, one, you are getting a little bit more variability in your day where you're not in this repetitive motion that got you in a burnout yeah. phase. And two, the resentment that you were feeling on a patient question end wasn't because you didn't want to answer it. It was because they were asking at a time where you didn't even have the space to answer it which I'm sure doesn't make you feel that great when you're walking back out of that room. And so it's allowed for you to have such a deeper connection with the patient because you're actually getting to things that you feel are moving them to a, a different yes, point. Yes, that's exactly right. You articulated that perfectly. You, let, I'm going to go out on a limb here and give an orthopedics example because I know you like ortho. Okay. So now I'm I'm talking completely <laughs> out of turn. The last time I ever learned anything ortho was 20 years ago. But let let's freestyle. Freestyle. Go for it. So let's say let's say you're a 
um, a, a hip replacement specialist. And uh, your your visit your visits are filled one after the other with hip replacement, hip replacement, hip replacement. And you're very busy, high volume. And if a patient comes in, what is a better use of both people's time? Should you be explaining like how the hip works and this is hip anatomy and this is why arthritis develops and these are all the different ways of replacing a hip, an anterior approach, posterior, blah, 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 blah. So if that, what if the basics of all that is already covered? Now you're like, okay, let's review your films. And remember, remember that part about um, such and such, the, the rod and the femur? Here's, here's why this is going to be problematic in your hip. And here's my experience with just an anterior approach and why I, I do it all the time. And patients like, oh, yeah, my films. That I remember you said in the video about this. And that's the kind of visit that to me is like aspirational. 100%. And I think on a patient end, it allows me or the patient to get to the questions that I'm really scared of, the quality of life questions instead of just the overview questions. Because we start with the overview questions as a patient if we don't understand those simple concepts. But what we're really scared about is this quality right. of life and these loss of things and will I be able to do this and how does that look like? And it's all of those things that we really care about. But if we don't have the foundations, we can't even get to our fear. Yeah, I, you're totally right. And I think a lot of this is um, a trap of falling into this is just you know how we do it. This is how things are done. I'm amazed that I, I bet you if I walk into any doctor's office and I go, bring me to the file cabinet with the handouts. Somebody would be like, oh, the handouts? Yeah, come over here. And we would go over to this like file cabinet, and yep. we open it, and it's like really like it's, there's papers everywhere, and one of the folders only has one piece of paper because that's the last one they need to save that to photocopy, and they've all been photocopied like fifty times. And then I'd be like, "Bring me to the bring me to the brochures." Like, oh, the brochures over here, and then and then uh, the brochures are like from like 1984, and they're like. Yep. They're terrible, and the even the good ones are like they are. There's nothing in it. They make my brain hurt yeah. a little bit, a lot. Some so of like, them, like I look at it and I immediately like my brain vomits inside, and then I terrible. can't even read it. And like I've gotten brochures, <laughs> and I open it, I'm like kind of excited that I got one, and then I'm like, and I'm let down every time. I'm like, ah, it's not. <laughs> so like, is this the best we can do? So uh, you know, I. Whether people use WellPrepped or some other system, it doesn't matter. But the the idea is it's 2022, almost 2023. You should be sending patients to podcasts. You should be sending patients yeah. to support group links online. You should be sending them to videos. Mm -hmm. Obviously, PDFs are still great. Um, your own videos. Yeah, yeah I mean, that. now we're talking. You yeah. have. You have patients that are looking for solutions on Instagram and TikTok. So if you don't think that you should have things besides this PDF that you dug out of this very dusty drawer, then there's a misconception, especially with the up-and-coming yeah. generations. Yeah. And the, and the cool thing is it can take a while for the doctor to set it up. But, you know, after they have it set up, 
you can kind of make sure that each patient has a similar experience because previously it was hard to be like, how could you organize all your favorite stuff in one spot and then just easily keep giving it to one patient after another? So that's what I find really exciting about it. But so I told you I was it was a reluctant endeavor, but I it it has been fueled by messages that I get from the doctors. So we have a few hundred doctors on it right now, and at least every other day, one of them emails me and. It's like a thank you email, which I can't believe every time. I like have you ever written thank you to Microsoft Word or like Excel? <laughs> no. <laughs> I have not. Definitely not to Excel. No, I haven't either. either. <laughs> so, you know, to to write a thank you to, to it's a piece of software, right? I mean, to write a thank you to some software entity is like really meaningful to me. It's like the thought of uh, I I knew that I enjoyed helping patients, but I had no idea that helping other doctor workflows was going to be so exciting for me. Like you know, to hear mm-hmm. a doctor be like, "Hey, listen, my clinic is feels so different. Thank you so much for making this thing. Is like great. It's wild." And so that that at, mm-hmm. when I started hearing those messages, it was like. This feels like a yeah. like a mm-hmm. purpose, you know. I got to get this in as many hands mm-hmm. as possible because it's a small workflow change, but I think it can make a big difference. And I can see so, your face light up when you talk about that mm-hmm. piece of it, where it's the impact mm-hmm. on the doctors. Um, mm-hmm. So after falling in on that impact, like if you could have it all your way, what does the widespread impact look like? So the widespread impact looks like, you know, if I could close my eyes and fast forward um well prep becomes thought of as the default delivery mechanism for anybody's favorite educational tools and people start paying more a little bit more attention to to what we're showing patients and what we're giving them rather than what it is now which is just very basic it should be eighth grade reading level and blah blah i mean (laughs) so aspirationally people pay attention to it and then creators uh, of content start creating with the idea of how are we going to deliver this at the point of care? Because right now, I'm amazed that there are incredible um, content creators. For example, you know, National Comprehensive Cancer Network. Let's just use that one example. They make these patient guides, but I think... They make them, and then they hope that it's going to land up in patients' hands. And and they're big enough that magically, magically. And they're big enough that a lot of patients do. You know, they have enough brand recognition that a lot of patients do read it. But I think it should be much more deliberate. Like we're going to make these, and then we have a means of getting it out at the point of care because it only matters if it if it's seen by the right patient at the right time. Absolutely. And then I hope I hope yeah, that I, I can that. somehow show that in a small way this helps doctors not leave medicine in in droves because they are right now. You know the cost of of replacing mm-hmm. a, a physician who decides to abandon medicine before retirement is like close to a million dollars in some cases. Yeah, uh, if you can if find, you can find them. them. So. Um, 
you are practicing full time. So what does it look like to invite people into your business with you and then market it? How has that worked? What's that dynamic been like uh, as the entrepreneur uh, along with the physician? For the teammates that I've that I've brought on? Yeah, for you and for the teammates. So what's it been like for you to kind of lead a team as you're scaling and growing? And uh, what's the dynamic been like with Yeah, so it's been very challenging for me personally um, to strike a balance because I'm working on this during non-work hours. I'm waking up a lot earlier than I normally would and staying up later than I normally would. And um, So it's been a challenge. If I said, oh, I... I balances perfectly my family my my main job and my side job it's just so easy that would be a complete lie um <laughs> i will tell you that i when i do have any time to work on well prepped which i squeeze in the, at the bookends of the day you know the before and after it doesn't feel like work because it it just feels important and exciting and so that's one piece of it when it's come to building a team, um, I'll tell you, the team is distributed all over the world. And so, and I think this is really, COVID allowed this to happen. Um, it existed before, but it's so much easier now. There's so many ways that we can communicate. We mentioned Loom. There's so much asynchronous communication on our team where someone asks a question about, you know, a bug or a feature that we're working on and I record an asynchronous loom video and, and we pass it back and forth and we get so much done. We You don't need to have too many synchronous meetings to get a ton of work done. The other thing that I do is I yeah. share, I try to make it a point to share the feedback that I just told you about, those thank yous and with the team directly. Like somebody, this is unbelievable, but on Thanksgiving, a well-prepped user actually tweeted, on Thanksgiving, I'm thankful for well-prepped and how it's changed my clinic. And I, like, can, can, I can't even believe. That's amazing. <laughs> As I'm telling you this, I can't believe it. But so I, I um, yeah. share that with with the whole team, you know, by email and everybody from the developers, um, we're developing a really great team. We have developers uh, halfway around the world, uh, head of marketing, chief operating officer, chief technical officer. Um, they they get so energized hearing that we're making a difference in doctors' lives. It's not just it's not just software. Yeah. And I think what you're doing there, either subconsciously or consciously, is what a lot of the individuals that we have on the podcast talk about the importance of is the mission and really getting everyone involved in the mission so that they see the impact they have in the larger picture. And so through these testimonials, you've kind of been able to build that up because you're getting this real-time feedback of how life-changing it is for these physicians. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so inspirational, too, that you're taking something from what you were experiencing with burnout, which was a huge piece for you. You identified it so clearly and then accidentally created something that could help so many other people. It's just inspirational to be able to target it and then find a solution to not only help yourself, but so many other people. What advice would you give to a physician who is experiencing burnout right now? 
My advice is to, uh, first of all, you need your sort of um, unofficial personal advisory board. Like hopefully you have friends and colleagues who whose relationship is with you is deep enough that it's not all like surface uh, small talk that you can be like, I had a crappy day and this surgical yeah. complication and you, you need sounding boards. You need to, you need to be able to vent. If there's no ability to vent and camaraderie, I think uh, that that should be priority number one. And then I think, uh, I mean, I keep going back to workflow do some soul searching and decide is is getting through your day from from a to z too difficult because if that's it workflow tweaks could be one element that'll that'll get you right back out of that cuz here's what happens if you lose time and efficiency in your in your in your work in your professional day you have to borrow it from some something else so you're going to borrow it from your personal time your time with your family, time with your friends, something else that's important to you. The, the time is finite. It's the most precious thing. So, but thinking about that, maybe that can sort of spark something in, in the listener say, you know what? Actually, it is, it is. I can't get through my day. I need help. And then it's a question of being assertive about what it is you need for support. Yeah, I love that. I think it, like you said at the beginning, we were talking about burnout. It's been uh, more so focused on wellness to the fact of personal rhythms, but not highlighting so much um, the actual rhythms within the clinic and the workspace there, which need to be addressed uh, with EHR burnout being a really, really uh, big targeted thing. So I'm glad you highlighted that. We, well, thank you for joining us. We are a little bit over, and I know you've got a lot of stuff to do, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. No, this has been great. I, I've, I've learned learned connections here just from from both of your reactions and questions that I some dots that I hadn't connected myself. I really appreciate it. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks for being on the podcast. We appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Leadership Pulse.